Hey, welcome to the 1505 Club. Today I want to focus on technique, specifically the cervical spine. This is an area where it's so easy to pick up bad habits, and one simple bad habit can ruin your chance of getting the results you want. Honestly, I see it all the time, and not just with my students who are trying to figure it out for the first time, but even in some practitioners who have been doing it for years. So let's talk about the two most common mistakes people make when it comes to the cervical spine. Have you ever given a cervical adjustment and then wondered to yourself, did I get enough P to A out of that one? If you have, then I think our topic today will really help you to gain clarity and answer that question for yourself. The first problem I typically see is too much lateral to medial line of drive. Every segment in the cervical spine has 14 degrees of lateral bending. The reason this is so uniform and precise is due to the presence of the uncovertebral joint. So first things first, on setup, we only want to laterally bend at the level of our contact. This is for the purpose of reducing the lateral wedging of the misaligned disc and putting it into a more neutral position prior to the thrust. That means when the setup is complete, the patient's head should only be 10 to 15 degrees off center or perpendicular to the floor. The patient's ear should not be on their shoulder and the head should not be 45 degrees or more off center. I see it all the time, not just from students, but on Facebook, Instagram, TikTok, and YouTube. The head should only have a slight tilt to it that matches the range of motion for the segment you're about to adjust. The other problem is a contact hand line of drive that pushes too far lateral to medial. The first problem is that due to the moment arm that's created by the distance between the nucleus, really it's the axis of rotation which is slightly anterior to the nucleus, and the contact point on the spinous process, a lateral to medial line of drive applied to the spinous process will induce rotation. Now before we go too far down this road, the reason people over-laterally flex the neck and the reason they apply too much lateral to medial line of drive are actually the same reason. The thing these both have in common is that they give the feeling of what we might call lockout or tension. What creates the feeling of lockout is the uncovertebral joint in this instance. As we all know, the uncinate processes exist to resist lateral motion. This is one reason why it's so important to have a pure P to A line of drive on any child who's too young to have an uncinate process. Once a person is old enough to develop their uncinate processes, there's a tendency to push into it and create a comfortable feeling for the doctor of tension, even to the point of lockout. The problem with thrusting into that tension is that first of all, it can cavitate, and this often leads to the false assumption that a correction, a correction has taken place. The other, much more severe problem, is that due to the locking mechanism between the uncinate process and the vertebra above, when we thrust into the subluxation, the subluxated vertebra, with a lateral to medial line of drive, there's a high likelihood of misaligning the vertebra below, the foundation vertebra beneath the subluxation. We all know how important it is to have a good foundation before we set the subluxation and the subluxated vertebra to it. How catastrophic it would be to unintentionally misalign that important foundational vertebra instead of making a correction to the subluxated vertebra. To make matters worse, it usually happens with a cavitation that could easily confuse the practitioner into thinking that they've accomplished something great, the correction of a subluxation, when in reality, 
they've left the subluxation unaffected and they've made matters worse by misaligning the vertebra beneath. This is not merely hypothetical or theoretical, but it actually happened to me a few months back. The attempt to correct my C7 resulted in a misalignment of my T1 and a minor irritation became bilateral muscle spasm and the inability to turn my neck. Fortunately, it was an easy problem to fix with a proper P to A adjustment, but, it certainly, but I certainly took note of how easy it was to create a big cavitation with no awareness that a problem had just been created and not corrected. So what is the proper application of the adjustment in regard to lateral to medial line of drive? When the thrust is given with too much lateral to medial line of drive, we will usually find that the adjusting elbow is close to the patient's shoulder instead of being close to the doctor's ribs. This subtle change of bringing the elbow in to the ribs prior to the thrust can have a tremendous effect on changing the line of drive from lateral to medial to a true posterior to anterior line of drive, as it should be. The only lateral to medial that we need is supplied by the use of the correct adjusting hand. If I make a contact with my right index finger, there's a slight right to left line of drive from my elbow, which is next to my ribs, and my contact finger, which is closer to the midline of my body. That's all the lateral to medial line of drive that's required. As I push I to S and P to A to set the bone up for the adjustment, I make the mental shift that now when I feel the tension of the uncinate, I want to stay away from it. An analogy that I often use in class is that it's like bumper bowling. The bumpers define the boundaries. As long as you stay between the bumpers, you have a clear path. If you hit the bumpers, then you encounter resistance from friction, which affects the spin and trajectory of the ball, so you, now you're no longer in control. The same thing happens if your line of drive bumps into the lateral boundary of the unconvertible joints. If you've never done it before, prior to your thrust, use your line of drive to hunt for the resistance of the unconvertible joints. Use this to determine exactly where the path of least resistance is, and this is the proper line of correction. The big difference between Gonstead adjusting and every other type of adjusting I know is that most chiropractors adjust into the resistance and we adjust into the ease. If you feel like you need to feel the resistance and you're not comfortable adjusting into the ease, then this is what you need to practice until you're comfortable avoiding the tension and adjusting into the ease. I don't want to ignore the fact that all the other components must be there as well, but today I'm only focusing on this one aspect. Without good stabilization, none of this is going to make much difference. Speaking of good stabilization, let's move on to the second most common mistake that I see people make. You may have already guessed that this mistake is to use too much rotation in your cervical adjusting. Do you find it difficult to make a good correction at C2? This could be due to the fact that C2 has significantly less rotational potential than, say, a lower cervical, for example. If you're using too much rotation, then you will have a harder time correcting the vertebra that rotate the least, like C2, and the upper thoracics, due to the restrictive capacity of the ribs. Where this problem typically shows up is at the thrust. As the doctors thrust, you will see the patient's chin rotate away from the side of the contact hand. There are a couple reasons why this might happen. The first is a contact point that's too broad or too lateral. This problem is more likely to occur with someone who's just beginning to learn the seated cervical adjustment. We often think of taking our contact as the thing that happens before the event, like the batter stepping into the batter's box or the free throw shooter stepping up to the line. In reality, taking our contact is not the thing that happens before the event, it's the most important part of the event, and it could even be the entire event.
When I take a contact, if it's off by even the slightest bit, I will release the contact and start all over. I know that if my contact isn't perfect, then my adjustment will not be what I need to get that patient better. Sometimes it's only for want of one degree or a different vector at the point of contact. These small changes can make a huge difference in the product you produce. If this seems intimidating to you, just remember what BJ Palmer said. If at first you don't succeed, keep sucking till you do. The more likely problem when it comes to too much rotation is poor stabilization, which means either the hand placement is wrong or the vector of the stabilization is not properly balanced with the force and vector of the contact hand. To solve this problem, I teach students to put their stabilization elbow in the proper place, which is anterior to their stabilization wrist, before making contact with the patient on the stabilization side. This will ensure that your stabilization force is in a proper A to P direction. What often happens is that the stabilization elbow is directly lateral to the stabilization hand or wrist. As the doctor pushes in with the contact hand, this drives the stabilization elbow further posterior. Now, when the doctor delivers the thrust, the stabilization elbow is too far posterior, uh, behind even the patient's head, to properly counter and resist the force to maintain neutrality. Instead, it ends up actually pulling the head around and making the rotation problem worse. All that to say that too much rotation on a seated cervical is almost always a stabilization problem. You may not like this suggestion, but either adjust in front of a mirror or video yourself adjusting. It won't lie, and now you'll see what you are really doing. So let me tell you a little story about that, and maybe it'll make you feel a little bit better. I had probably been in practice for about 11 or 12 years when I started working with students. Up to that point, I had been so focused on what, what was happening in the patient and focusing on them and what, what I was doing internally that I wasn't totally uh, okay. I wasn't focused at all on what I looked like when I was doing the adjustment. One day, the kids, as I call them, started videoing me, and they insisted on showing me the video. As the story goes, the first time Dr. Gonsted saw himself on video, he said, never show that to anyone again. Well, that's exactly how I felt. I was horrified by what I was seeing. So I asked myself, can I modify my body position to create an adjustment that looks good while still giving an adjustment that works good? So I started modifying to improve the appearance. And just like magic, the results improved as well. I started giving better adjustments and getting better results. Fast forward just a bit, and when I started teaching at Life, the Gonstead room we use for lab has mirrors all the way around it. I immediately recognized that it didn't matter where I was in the room, I could see myself and evaluate my posture. So I started focusing on being really strict with my setups and thrusts. Again, the quality of my adjustments and the results continue to improve. So here I am, 21 years in practice, and I'm still trying to figure out how to give a better, more skilled adjustment and make it look good too, because that seems to be part of the key to actually getting the results. This is why I recommend video or mirrors. I've used both, and I've benefited from both. Okay, so I said there are two major mistakes, but I'm going to go ahead and give you a third bonus mistake. This too is more of a novice mistake, but I still see it a lot. When the adjustment is all set up, Feel under your stabilization hand to ensure that the patient is in a neutral, relaxed position. There's a YouTube video of Dr. Gonstead where he talks about using extension, lateral bending, and rotation so that the patient's chin is elevated and rotated away and the neck under the stabilization hand is stretched tight. He says you never want to create that kind of tension in the skin and muscles. Even on the internet, I still see people create this type of setup, 
but it actually impedes and prevents the proper P to A adjustment and line of correction that we're trying to create. The proper alignment for an adjustment is always neutrality. If we are at tension, it means we are exaggerating some vector much more than we should. Now, if you'll indulge me for a moment, I'd like to switch gears back to our topic for last week. In hindsight, I wish I would have had the energy to organize my notes better because I forgot a number of important things. However, before I get to any of that, I would like to say something very important. At the worst of my experience with COVID, I was working as hard as I could to breathe, but I knew it wasn't enough, and I was not keeping up with what my body's demand for oxygen was. I was basically suffocating while breathing. Because of that experience, I have the utmost empathy for anyone who has experienced what I did, and it's absolutely horrifying to me that people have died of this disease, because that's how they died. They functionally suffocated. I make this point because I now have natural immunity, which means I can't make anybody else sick and they can't make me sick. So is that the reason why I don't wear a mask? Is that the reason why I don't want a vaccine? Yes, but not really. As far as the vaccine, I now have natural immunity. To take a vaccine and increase my already elevated antibody levels is to invite autoimmune disease. No thanks, I'm good. When it comes to masks, the real reason has to do with the Cochrane collaboration. The funny thing is that if you mention the Cochrane to a doctor, they will say, well, then it must be true because we have so much respect for them. But if you mention it to a layperson, they will have no idea what you're talking about and they'll probably rebut with something they heard on CNN. Why? Well, because we know that RCTs might be toward the top of the pyramid of evidence, but systematic reviews are even higher, especially when they're done with the quality that Cochrane is known for. So here are some interesting things I found out from Cochrane. First, they looked at surgical masks worn during surgery. They found that there is no difference in wound infection if the surgeon did or didn't wear a mask. I think we all assume that surgical masks prevent infection in the surgical setting, but it turns out that's actually a rather difficult thing to prove. Also, Cochrane discovered that when looking at mask wearing as it relates to SARS-CoV-2, if you look at a small sample size, the data will show a slight benefit from mask wearing. However, if you conduct a larger study with a much more acceptable end value, the benefits of mask wearing disappear and there's no difference between the two sample groups. Obviously, if your goal is to mislead and manipulate people, then you're going to use studies with small sample size and trust that Joe Average Citizen is too scientifically inept to realize that your incredibly small end value is driving a false conclusion. Of course, you can always follow it up with the phrase, because science, and do your research. Who cares about a little inconvenience like a small N value? While I was sick, I tried to keep up with my emails. Not like I had the energy to respond to any of them anyway. One of them was from MedPage. The story was about an internal memo at the CDC. The memo stated that the vaccine was proving to be nearly useless at changing transmission rates. Therefore, in their words, quote, herd immunity is off the table. Now, obviously, we could reach herd immunity very quickly if we just let people get sick, but we establish a proper treatment protocol to help them. In this way, we would develop herd immunity with almost no deaths. Well, that's obviously not what we're going to do. One of the employees at the CDC said anonymously that they held this memo for a week, and every day that people were getting a vaccine with a high rate of adverse events in the hopes that they would avoid severe disease, which is obviously something this vaccine cannot do based on this memo, means that people are dying because of a false belief and it's the CDC's fault for holding this information and not sharing it with the public. 
In short, there were many within the CDC who were questioning why this information was being held instead of sharing it with the public. The short answer is because they don't want to encourage vaccine hesitancy, even when all of the best evidence indicates that hesitancy might be the best approach. So just to wrap up, it's pretty incredible that Dr. Fauci created a fake AIDS epidemic where most of the deaths attributed to AIDS were actually the result of a treatment he had devised. He also created a fake Zika epidemic. Remember that one? Remember the Olympics where athletes didn't go because they were afraid they would have children with microcephaly? Surprise, surprise, it didn't even happen once. I bet some of those athletes wish they would have gone to the Olympics and won a medal. And still, Anthony Fauci remains in a position to take what he learned from his fake pandemics and give us this one. And no president ever saw fit to hold him accountable and fire him? It seems pretty incredible to me, but here we are. Anyway, I hope you learned something today about cervical adjusting, and hopefully I inspired you to be hypercritical of your technique and always work toward delivering a better adjustment. Now that I'm back in motion, I'm working on lining up a whole new lineup of great guests. In the meantime, I hope you have the very best week possible, and I'll see you again next time.